And join me this morning in Luke chapter 20. We continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 20, we will be looking this morning at verses 27 through 40. And our sermon is entitled, Resurrection Marriage. Our key words are Sadducees, Resurrection, and Wife. Luke 20. There's a classic uh, movie from 1975 that you've either seen or don't want to admit you've seen, but it's called Monty Python and the Holy Grail. There's a very hilarious scene in this movie where Sir Lancelot, Sir Robin, Galahad, and King Arthur all arrive at the Bridge of Death. And they have to answer three questions from the bridge keeper in order to cross. If they answer any of the questions incorrectly or hesitate in their answer at all, they are catapulted over the edge into the volcano below. Lancelot answered his questions and crossed safely. Robin and Galahad did not. And then it gets to King Arthur. And the dialogue goes like this. The bridge keeper says, stop. What is your name? King Arthur responds, it is Arthur, king of the Britons. What is your quest? King Arthur says, to seek the Holy Grail. Two easy questions to be sure. But then the bridge keeper asks, what is the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow. King Arthur, quick on his feet, says, What do you mean? An African or European swallow? The bridge keeper, shocked and confused, responds, Huh? I, I don't know that. And so he is launched off the bridge into the volcano below. And then Sir Uh, Bedivere turns to King Arthur and says, how do you know so much about swallows? And King Arthur replies, well, you have to know these things when you're a king, you know. Now, this is a funny example of the sort of thing we've been seeing at this point in the Gospel of Luke. (laughs) The last two weeks, we've seen the scribes and the Pharisees and the Herodians as they've attempted They've come and attempted, if you will, to launch Jesus off of the bridge with some ridiculous questions intended to trip him up and to trap him. However, as true wisdom himself, Jesus has continually turned the tables and has silenced them all. They stand in silence. They stand in awe of his ability to respond to their questions. And it's as if Jesus is saying, well, you have to know these things when you're the one true and living king, you know? Their antagonism has failed. They've walked away with their tails between their legs. And so this morning, having having already watched the scribes and the Pharisees and the Herodians fail in their attempts to trap Jesus... The elitist Sadducees show up, perhaps not only to trap Jesus like the others have sought to do, but also to give all of them a lesson on how to put Jesus in his place. 
It'll be helpful for us to know a little bit about the Sadducees this morning. The Sadducees were given the responsibility of serving as priests in the Jerusalem temple after Israel's return from their Babylonian captivity because they are all descendants of Zadok. In the first century, in the days of Jesus, the Sadducees were a tight-knit group of high priests. The historian Josephus describes them as well-to-do and men of highest esteem. Now, it's ironic, given their position within the temple, that they were very worldly men. Remember, we looked a few weeks ago when Jesus came and he cleansed the temple in the court of the Gentiles and they were selling sacrifices and exchanging money, all at this huge profit. Well, these people were all under the charge and direction of the Sadducees. Clearly, the Sadducees were into money. Additionally, they were materialists to the core. They, they denied the resurrection. And along with their denial of the resurrection, they denied any afterlife at all. No reward, no judgment, nothing after death. Josephus explains, as for the persistence of the soul, penalties in death's abode and rewards, they do away with them. And also, he said, the soul perishes along with the body. So the Sadducees, to them, the the resurrection was a non-issue. It didn't exist because life after death didn't exist. And if you want to remember this, I admit it's cheesy, but I learned this when I was a kid, and it's been helpful ever since. If you want to tell the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, And who believed what? Those who don't believe in the resurrection and the life to come, they are sad, you see. The Sadducees. There you go. That's free. Now this is something, this disagreement between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, this is something Paul uses to his advantage when he stands before the Sanhedrin in Acts 23. The Sanhedrin was a group made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees, and they convened to rule on matters of religion, but they were sharply divided, particularly on the issue of the resurrection. So Paul, being as wise as he was, as he stands before the Sanhedrin, we read this in Acts 23. Verses 6 through 8. When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said these things, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. It was a brilliant plan on Paul's part to turn them against one another on the issue of the resurrection, thus turning all of their attention away from him. So the Sadducees were functionally deists. They believed God exists. They believed God created. But they denied the resurrection, the afterlife, the idea that God intervenes in daily life and providence. They argued that everything in life is up to man. And in all of this, they proudly believed that they stood on solid ground because they argued the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible, never give reference to a resurrection. But it was convenient to them that they only held to the Pentateuch to be of significant importance. 
They were closed to considering any other Old Testament text. They completely rejected the Pharisees' arguments on the resurrection with closed minds. One commentator concludes, all in all, they were a tight little circle of mean-spirited religious aristocrats, insular, patrician, heartless, philosophical materialists. Josephus says they were indeed more heartless than any other of the Jews, and that the Sadducees are even among themselves rather boorish in their behavior and in their interaction with their peers are as rude as aliens. They were the worst of the worst. So what happens with the Sadducees as they interact with Jesus? Let's begin in verse 27. There came to Jesus some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore... Whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. So what is the issue that they're raising? It stems from a law in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. And this is what the law says. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son... The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall secede the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. This is called a leveret marriage. The term leveret comes from the Latin word lever which means brother-in-law. This is not what we might expect. You probably read that and think it means from the tribe of Levi. It has nothing to do with that. The issue at stake was inheritance and the care for the widow. And Josephus actually records that this was uh, practiced still in Palestine in Jesus' day. Actually, even before the law of Deuteronomy, there's a lot of evidence that this custom was going on uh, when a man's brother died childless, the man uh, then had to marry his brother's widow. The scandal in Genesis 38 with Judah and Tamar, this was the result of the neglect of this practice. Uh, This is also what's going on in the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. The idea was that a widow without a son was completely unable to provide for herself, to protect herself. And so a man's brother had the responsibility to take that on his, uh, in his brother's place. And some of you men are thinking of your sisters-in-law and may be thankful this isn't the law anymore. <laughs> but this kept a family from disintegrating. It kept the family's wealth intact and it protected the women of their society. It was a good thing. But more to the point here is what the Sadducees are trying to do. They're taking God's law and they're distorting it for their own purposes. 
In other words, they're calling into question the outcome of all of this as God has prescribed it. God has said that this is what they are to do, and yet the Sadducees want to see a problem with it. And on top of it all, they don't even believe in the resurrection. So it's a complete farce across the board. Nevertheless, the assumption behind their hypothetical question was that life in the resurrection is exactly the same as life here on earth. And so making this fictional woman guilty of incest seven times over. Think of how awful that suggestion itself is. The Sadducees are accusing God of creating a situation whereby there would be exponential and eternal carnality. Or if that's not the case, it, it, is, uh, it is that the, the Sadducees were leading toward this idea that the entire notion of resurrection is absurd and should be disregarded altogether. If it weren't a serious accusation, we could, uh, we could say that it's fitting in a Greek comedy of sorts. We would get to the fifth brother and by that time he would say, over my dead body. And it may be comical if this wasn't a very serious matter. It was absurd. But behind the absurdity is a clear hatred for what God has said in his law. A clear hatred for the supernatural of resurrection. And most pernicious, a clear hatred for Jesus himself. No doubt by now they'd probably shut down many of the Pharisees in their arguments with this very question as they debated the resurrection. So they just knew that this was in the bag. They had just what it took to thwart Jesus, and they were going to show everyone that they could do it. However, as we've grown to expect by now, the Sadducees were not quite ready for what came next. Look at verse 34. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, isn't our Lord wise? Look how masterfully he handles the foolishness of his detractors. Without hesitation, Jesus answers their question. The first thing Jesus does is draws a distinction between this life and the life to come. He says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Here and now, in this life, in this world, marriage is a reality that we partake in. We delight in it and we pursue it. But Jesus goes on in verse 35, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. So look what Jesus does here. He completely bypasses their nonsensical claim regarding the resurrection not being true. He simply affirms it instead. And notice how he says it. Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age... He's talking about the age to come, the the time ahead after death. And there's a worthiness tied to this. And when they are deemed worthy, he says, there will be a resurrection from the dead. And we understand that worthiness is having received the righteousness of Christ. 
And when one ascends to heaven and is resurrected from the dead, Jesus says they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. So you see the contrast. On earth, there is marriage and giving in marriage. But in heaven, there are no human marriages. This is why after someone's husband or wife dies, they're free to marry again. The marriage has ended. Now, the fact that there is no marriage after the resurrection, truth be told, it may be good news to some people. But if you're like me, you might initially trip over this a little bit. If you love your spouse, if you're happy in your marriage, as I am, it seems a sad thing to you. You may say to God, don't take this away from me. It's such a blessing. Why would I not want to enjoy it in heaven? And I hope your marriage is that good. But we have to keep this in mind. Marriage is not ultimately about marriage. It was never created by God for your ultimate satisfaction. It was created to help you through this life, to give you companionship, to give you friendship, for childbearing and childrearing. It's a gift in this season. But there is no human marriage after death. But the good news is we will love each other more than we do now in our marriages. We will be our sinless, perfected selves. We will be at our ultimate best. But this is why marriage here and now is so important and why divorce is such a destructive thing. Because of what it is and mainly because of what it represents. Marriage in this life is a picture. It's a parable of the truth of what God does with his church in Jesus Christ. The Bible is a bridal book. It's all about marriage and like every great epic of Greek literature, it ends with a wedding feast. When I say it's all about marriage, it's about the marriage of Christ to his bride. The true marriage that is to ultimately and finally come when Christ is finally and fully united to his bride, the church. So our marriage here is a shadow. It's a picture of the covenant keeping between Christ and his glorified church. We won't be married in heaven to one another because collectively as God's people, we will be married to Christ as his bride. Brothers and sisters, we don't know what that's like. We may not like the thought of not having our our marriage in heaven, but let me assure you that it will be far greater. One writer said, the music of every pleasure will be transposed into an infinitely higher key. When he was in prison, the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer was writing letters and papers and sermons. <coughs> and <coughs> excuse me, in one such writing, he's reflecting on Ephesians 1 and verse 12, which says this, So that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Bonhoeffer wrote this, Marriage is more than your love for each other. In your love, you see only the heaven of your happiness. But in marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility toward the world and mankind. Your love is your own private possession, but marriage is more than something personal. It is a status and office. Just as it is the crown and not merely the will to rule that makes the king, so it is marriage and not merely your love for each other that joins you together in the sight of God and man. 
So you see, as Bonhoeffer points out, marriage is about the covenant bond between a husband and a wife. And Paul explains in Ephesians 5.32 that it refers to Christ and his church. The covenant-keeping love reaches its climax in the death of Christ for his church, his bride. And that death was the ultimate expression of grace, which is the ultimate expression of God's glory, which has infinite value. So when Paul says that our great and final destiny is the praise of God's glorious grace, he elevates marriage beyond measure from here, from this life, from this age, from this earth, to the apex of his glorious grace. Christ loved the church, his bride, and he gave himself up for her. That is the meaning of marriage. It's glorious. It's, it's beautiful. Listen, I love my wife with all of my heart, and I think we have a wonderful marriage, but it is nothing compared to what is yet to be revealed when we are gloriously wed to Christ forever and ever. This, by the way, is one of the tragedies of many of Mormon theology. To Mormons, marriage is a replication of Christ's relationship is, excuse me, is not a replication of Christ's relationship to the church, but rather it is an essential element to a man's development in becoming a God himself. So if in this life you have a, a, a good or many good celestial marriages and are able to produce celestial children, you can fill countless millions of worlds with your children as you ascend to divinity. So you see, none of it's about Christ. None of it is about the glory of Christ and the fact that he's the central figure of all of history. It's about you becoming your own great God. So marriage isn't about sacrifice and covenant keeping. It's not about the glory of God for the Mormon. It's, a, it's about making sure that they set themselves up for a better kingdom as they're a God in the life to come. It's utter foolishness. It's folly to disregard the word of God, to deify man, to belittle marriage. And a quick note for those of you who are single. Some of you are single and you like it that way and that's okay. There's nothing that says you have to be married. There are others who are single and want to be married, but it just hasn't happened. Don't despair. Don't grow weary in this life, even if you never get married. The true everlasting marriage is yet to come. And you will be as much of a part of that marriage as all of your friends who have spouses here and now. You, in so many ways, have a great privilege to give yourself to others in service to our great king in ways that married people cannot. Paul makes this argument in 1 Corinthians 7. So don't waste your singleness. Just as much as marriage is a display to the world of what Christ's relationship to his church is all about, your singleness is important in displaying what faithfulness and, and persistence and patience and contentment and trust and service all look like for those who are servants of God. So you, single Christian, are a tremendous blessing to the body of Christ and are a value far beyond what you most likely assume yourself to be. Do not despair. Now, I want to take a few minutes to deal with verse 36 because the language here is very interesting. 
Jesus says three things of those who attain the resurrection from the dead. So let's look at them one at a time. First, he says that they can no longer die. That seems easy enough. In this life, marriage and childbearing are very important for human life to propagate throughout the world. But mankind will not continually be creating in heaven. So that's, in that sense, marriage will find its end. And by creating, I'm talking about procreating, making new life. Likewise, the quality of life in the coming age is such that death cannot touch it. Since there is no sin in the new heavens and the new earth, likewise there will be no death. Brothers and sisters, in heaven there will be no more funerals to attend. No more tears of sadness to cry. No more aching of the heart to feel. No more words from a doctor that it's cancer. No more hairs turning gray or faces getting wrinkles or excruciating pain when you just try to get out of bed. In Christ we are immortal as the children of God. Secondly, we read that they are equal to angels. In comparison here, Jesus says those who attain to the resurrection will be equal to angels. What does that mean? Well, it does not mean that we become angels. Likewise, it does not mean that angels are of a higher order than mankind. We are created in God's image. Angels are not. We have the treasury into which the angels long to look, the Bible tells us. So Jesus' point is something else here. He's saying that we will be equal to the angels in beauty and in strength. Our bodies will have powers of which we have no concept. We will have an enlarged mental capacity. We will have a greater spiritual range. We will, as the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, have been sown in weakness but will be raised in power. And like the angels, our character will be faultless. The angels perfectly do God's will. And yet we now pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But in the new heavens and the new earth, we will always do what God commands, without reservation, without complaint. In heaven, we will have no unrighteous desires, no covetous cravings, no proud thoughts, no depressions of spirit, no poles of self-will, no inclinations to sin. Our habitual sins that afflict us so much in this life will finally be gone forever. And like the angels, we will perpetually worship God. They all cast their crowns before him. Cherubim and seraphim veil their faces, but they all sing. And we will have even more than they sing about. Because we, unlike the angels, have been redeemed by Christ. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, Never did angels taste above redeeming grace and dying love. You see, we have far greater to rejoice in than the angels. We have far more an experience of God's love and grace than the angels because we have been redeemed. And so joy will ever be our emotion because it is the emotion of heaven. Thirdly, Jesus says they are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. 
Now, there is no small disagreement when it comes to the understanding of the Bible's teaching on what it means by the phrase, sons of God. This is a phrase linked back to Genesis 6. Let me read that text to you. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. It says this. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, I don't have the time this morning to dive into all of Genesis 6, the different ideas about what's going on here, but I am thoroughly convinced, and I have the history of the church on my side, to say that Genesis 6, 1 through 4, refers to angels who are called sons of God. They left their proper domains, they came down to earth, they married human women, and they had gigantic offspring, the Nephilim. So the Nephilim, who Moses also describes of mighty men who were of old, were giants, and they were the offsprings of of the sons of God and the women they made to be their wives. And the books of Job and Daniel and several of the Psalms all refer to the sons of God being angels of some sort. So the biblical evidence seems to support that conclusion. Well, so what? What does that have to do with this? While we've generally lost an understanding of who the sons of God were, the Sadducees knew exactly who they were. There would have been no question in their minds about that term as Jesus used it. So Jesus is saying, as the angels, as the sons of God are seen as sharing God's realm, so too now are, a, uh, now are the people of, of those on the earth who will be resurrected believers. And here's why I point this out. Jesus is pounding the Sadducees pretty hard for their rejection of the resurrection and the afterlife. He is destroying their anti-supernaturalism. He's almost being very sarcastic here. They deny angels. They deny resurrection. They deny heaven and hell. They really deny everything supernatural altogether. And here's Jesus taking one of the most well-known stories in the Bible and saying, when the resurrection happens, those who are raised from the dead will be as the sons of God because of their resurrection. And so you see, Jesus completely obliterates their nonsensical theology. And then he goes further in defense of the resurrection. Look at verse 37. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he's not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Jesus went right to the heart of the Torah, the Pentateuch, where the Sadducees insist there is no teaching on a resurrection from the dead. But not only does Jesus go there, he goes to the most famous passage in the Pentateuch where God reveals himself to Moses and commissions him as a servant for the Israelites before Pharaoh and through the wilderness. So what's Jesus' point here? Here was his logic. God's statement in Moses in Exodus chapter 3 at the bush was present tense. Exodus 3, 6 says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
But you see, the statement does not make any sense at all if Moses' fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are dead and not presently alive. If I said to you, I was your father's friend, I'd probably say it because he is either now dead or there was some significant change in the relationship. But if I say, I am your father's friend, it conveys something in the present tense. It's an ongoing relationship, right? So God doesn't say to Moses, I was the father of Abraham, but he says, I am the father of Abraham. So he wasn't just talking about a past relationship he had with Abraham. Something instead that's ongoing is what he's conveying. This is Jesus' point. It was a powerful argument. The logic is easy for us to appreciate. But Jesus' words actually conveyed something that was even more compelling to the ancient Hebrew mind. These three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they enjoyed a special covenant relationship with God. It was so dynamic, it was so profound, that it demanded a continued living relationship with God even after death. The writer of Hebrews tells us that these patriarchs knew that the covenant promises transcended earthly life and were eternal. Hebrews 11 says that Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. All these people were still living by faith when they died. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, and they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. And then... Hebrews eleven sixteen adds, instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. The eternal God does not covenant with temporal creatures who only live for 70 or 80 years and then go out like a candle. No, God continues in relationship with his people everlastingly. Jesus' words were powerfully compelling to the Hebrew mind and his concluding thrust In verse 38, he says, He's not a God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. This must have caused a murmur in the crowd. If God is the God of the living, and since God said long after the death of the patriarchs that he is their God, then they must be alive. Then the resurrection must be true. And if the Sadducees had understood the nature of the miracle-working God of the Old Testament they would not have doubted his power to raise the dead to life. There are numerous places in the Old Testament from which the resurrection can be understood. In fact, right in Genesis 2, the creation of man, we have a proto-resurrection, our first resurrection. God calls Adam from the dust. God created all things, ex nihilo, from out of nothing and then specifically breathe life into the lifeless body of Adam. He came up from the dust into life. It's resurrection. And what about when Abraham took Isaac up the mountain to sacrifice him? You ever notice what he says to the servant at the bottom of the mountain? He says in Genesis 22.5, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship And then we will come back to you. We. The son I'm about to go sacrifice on the altar, him and I will be back. This implies belief in the resurrection and the resuscitating power of God. 
The writer of Hebrews says, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Hebrews eleven nineteen. Resurrection language is everywhere in the Old Testament. And the Sadducees were too focused on themselves to see it. And so as a result, Jesus once again could not be thwarted. Their mouths were closed. Look how it ends in verse 39. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. Mark's parallel account says that Jesus commented during the dispute with the Sadducees, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures and the power of God? Truly, the Sadducees did not know the scriptures. They did not know God's power. But what about us? Do we know the reality and relationship that the patriarchs perceived? If so, we can expect a resurrection. Knowing Christ, having an exchange of soul with him in new covenant terms, having a new heart is a powerful argument for the life hereafter and our eventual resurrection from the dead. Something so real, so dynamic, so encompassing, so right, so holy and energizing cannot end. If we deny the resurrection, we deny the power of God. We deny the everlasting life of Christ. And if you deny the resurrection from the dead and deny Christ, I call on you today to repent of your rebellion against God and his power and his authority in your life. Because you were created in his image to display before the world his glory and his majesty and his worth. Put your trust in Christ alone, who makes all things new, even dead, lifeless bodies. Do you know the scriptures? Do you know God's power? If so, he says, I am your God. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And your soul bears his signature in Christ everlastingly. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your power, for your resurrection power. For the power that brought us from death to life. As we were dead in our transgressions and sins, you raised us from that death and gave us new life in Jesus Christ that will be everlasting. We thank you for the resurrection of Jesus. That he has been raised from the dead and lives forevermore. That our hope is not in a savior, in a sacrifice that lays in a tomb, but in a king, a prophet, a priest, the eternal lamb who was slain and sits on the throne, ruling and reigning forever and ever. Father, give us a greater hope, a greater joy, a greater longing and anticipation for the life to come. Thank you, O God, for your word. Thank you for your power and for the joy that is ours in Christ Jesus alone. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.